Hello, welcome to You Don't Know Mojack. My name is Ryan. My name's Brad. And on this episode, rev up your P-Combines, because we're heading back to Ellensburg, Washington with SST-188, the Screaming Trees full-length Invisible Lantern. We are big fans of the trees on the show, and we love this record. How can you not? Uh, but to help us along the way, we've got a special guest, Brent. Yeah, Mark Pickerel's on the show. So cool to have Mark on. You know, I forgot to ask you to ask him. I feel like one of the, it feels like dozens of times that I saw Nico Case come through town. I think Mark was actually drumming for her. I don't know if, did you talk with him about that off- offline? I no, can't remember. I didn't. I was thinking the same thing. Yeah, like I, I, I feel like Nico came through town one time and everyone's like, oh, hey, I think that's the Screaming Trees drummer. But I've never really validated that. I should Google that yeah. or something. Maybe Mark will let us know offline. Anyways, yeah. can't wait to get into this record. Any opportunity to talk about the trees and to listen deeply to the trees is very welcome in, uh, in our books. So before we get into it, though, Brant, why don't you hit us with some spiels? Okay, these are all Washington tie-ins. Nice. Yeah. I'm just going to tell you about a few records that you should check out if you haven't. Well, one of them I know for sure you know because we've talked about it before. I'll just start at the start. Young Gins. Ah. As in Greg Gins. Yes, yes, of course. <laughs> From Olympia, or they were based out of Olympia, it... There's a single, but then there's this self-titled CD comp that came out in 1998 on Honey Bear Records, San Francisco label run by Lance Hahn of J Church. Hmm. So yeah, it has the six song seven inch in it, which came out in 93. And then uh, this 13 song comp with the complete 11 song session and a few compilation tracks on it. Here's what it says in the bio. Fueled by the sounds of hardcore and SST releases, they reasoned that if young writers were calling themselves Young Ginsburgs, then they'd call themselves Young Gins. Mm. So, Ryan, drummer Brant Sandino, cool name by the way, was <laughs> co-founder of Unwound Survival Knife, Ryan. What? What? Yeah. How do I not know this? The bassist... Justin Trosper, frontman for Unwound and several other projects, lots with yeah. Brent. Yeah. Um, Tim Green on guitar, he also engineered the bulk of these tracks. He's played in tons of bands, bands like Vile Cherubs, The Fucking what? Champs, what? Nation of Ulysses, and he's also engineered records that are for sure in your collection, like the Melvins Trilogy. Mm-hmm. Uh, at his studio, Louder. And then Brett Frost is the vocalist. Not really sure who he is, but he really belts it out Dezo style. It's Black Flag-esque, but I'd say they're kind of their own thing too. Like it's more than just a tribute. It's dirgy at times, some almost like flag instro spoken word type of stuff. Hmm. Definitely a throwback to Damaged Era Black Flag or Void, who they cover. They cover the Void song, Time to Die. I, I bet you I've read that name before and probably dismissed it, but because of, because of the name, mm-hmm. which is, I probably shouldn't do that based on what you're saying. Okay. Ryan, my name is the band. Yes. Wet Hills and Big Wheels, 1993 CZ, their second mm-hmm. album. 
So we've talked about CZ a lot, and I know many of the artists, but I have to admit I did not know the band My Name. Oh, yeah? I checked them out when Carl Alvarez mentioned them on uh, the Mike Herrera podcast as a band that all toured with mm-hmm. back in the early 90s. I know we've talked about this this before, but uh, again, good timing. They fit right in with this episode. They were a Tacoma-based band. And I can see why all dug them. Uh, melodic and hooky vocals, but very angular playing, complex drumming, very similar to some of the all stuff, especially like All, Ray, all Roy Saves era. Hmm. It's good. I'm going to check yep. out more. Yep. I've got the records. They're good. Yeah. I, I mean, I still buy anything that I see with CZ on it, right? It's a pretty safe bet. Yep. And then Pure Joy out of Seattle. Speaking of CZ, we talked about them a while back when we were going through the CZ secretions comp. Mm -hmm. I really dug their track on there, so I kind of sought out some more. Uh, Unsung is the album released in 1994 on Fly Daddy Records, recorded though in 1988. Here's what it says on the liner notes of the CD. Intended to be the first full-length Pure Joy release. It was financed by a shady character. He fled town with the master tapes. He fled town with all of the money. He has never been heard from again. Fortunately, Rusty and Craig saw this coming and made copies of the tapes. Unfortunately, they didn't take his money. Time passed. The tapes gathered dust. The band recorded an album that was released, Carnivore. And eventually, Pure Joy broke up sometime in 1989. People kept saying, gee, wouldn't it be great if those songs were finally released? We asked Rusty if we could put them out. He said yes. Rusty, Ryan is obviously Rusty Willoughby, later of Flop, as we mentioned. Mm -hmm. Uh, The band did reform in the mid-90s and release two more albums, Pure Joy. This is just a great indie rock album with a power pop bent to it. Apparently, they took their name from a Teardrop Explodes song and you can hear that English post-punk neo-psychedelic influence on on some of this like bands like Buzzcocks but even like Echo and the Bunnymen, The Jam, Jesus and Mary Chain. Pure joy. Cool. Love it. Love it. I gotta find more. That's it for me Ryan. What do you have? Okay so my spiel this week is not an episode of Three on the Tree and by tree we're talking about the SS tree Mm-hmm. Um, bands that are related to SST. This one is many on the tree because I've got more than three. Okay. <laughs> uh, so the first one I want to mention is a new release by Negative Land. They have a new seven inch out called No Brain. You can pick it up on their negativeland.com website. This is their follow up to their 2020 double LP, The World Will Decide, and their 2021. Ox Brain LP. Very prolific these days, Negative Land, and they've got a purple 7-inch single that you should pick up. Mm-hmm. Next is a new split single with Sonic Youth and the Pastels. This is, it looks, I mean, you would know better than me. Uh, I didn't do a bunch of digging on this, but it is Sonic Youth and the Pastels covering the New York Dolls. It's on Glass Modern Records. It looks to be sold out already, like it was up and down 
in hours or days, sold out. Sonic Youth do a cover of Personality Crisis from 1992. And the Pastels, this is that Scottish band, the Pastels, they do a cover of Lonely Planet Boy from 1987. Mm, Interesting. Third one on the tree. And for this one, Brent, I don't know who's on first, but... Watts on bass? Correct. So we've got a new release from SLW and Watt. Uh, If you recall, from May of this year, SLW and Watt released an LP called Real Manic Time. Digital only at the time. It's supposed to have a physical copy. Haven't seen that arrive yet. But they've now released a 45-track EP out on cassette called Let's Build a Log Jam. You can get that from the SLW and Watt Bandcamp. SLW, again, is Samuel Locke Ward. I really still don't know too much about him, but when you look him up, he is... uh, Characterized as a songwriter, singer, multi-instrumentalist, producer, and performance artist from Iowa. But it's his second record with Watt, which is cool this year. Mm. Now, Brent, for the next three on the tree, I need to go to a particular zone. And I want you to lay it on for us in a really throaty baritone, please. Come so. Excellent. Thank you very much. So the first one, I've been looking for this for a long time. You probably have heard it uh, somewhere, somehow, but I've not until I got uh, my disc in the mail. This is a comp called Revival Volume 2 on Yep Rock Records. It's subtitled Kudzu and Hollerin' Contest. This is from 2005, a Roots Rock rockabilly country comp of course on yep rock it has the drive-by truckers whiskey town um, and others that people will probably know but the reason i would have been searching for this and the reason i bought it is because it has a track by a band called grand national brand do you know that band i do i think i've even seen them play but i can't think of who's in the band so this is grand national the band fronted by Ed from Ohio. Mm. Have not seen them play. Yeah, you might be thinking of the other Grand National. This is the Ed from Ohio Grand National band. And as far as I can tell, the only recorded track that's out there, like an official release by Grand National, the song is called Money and Love, a sleepy acoustic country roots number where Ed from Ohio is just picking and wailing. And it's killer. It was... Mm. Uh, it's it's been worth all the searching to get another ed from ohio tune i hope he's doing well i hope to hear more ed from ohio for the rest of my days i do not know that comp i'm assuming southern culture and the skids are on it just based on the subtitle not uh, not hey because that's not. the name of this they uh, they have they have uh like their their whole shtick lately is old kudzu and they have got a record kudzu ranch and stuff well that's the name of rick miller's studio and, yeah. and Ed was in Southern Culture. So I thought maybe all of that stuff was recorded at Kudzu Ranch or something. Oh, you know what? I I mean, I knew the Southern Culture Kudzu name, but I did not make that connection. Let me take a look here. Because I remember looking in the liner notes here, the info was very, very sparse. It doesn't talk about where any of this stuff is recorded. Hmm. No. And of course, this is when... Ed was like in Chapel Hill, North Carolina, also playing in Whiskeytown, right? Mm-hmm. 
All right, so we're still in the comp zone for two more. Here is another one. This one is called 78 LTD. This is a comp on Thick Syrup Records from 2011. I've been trying to track this one down for a while, and I don't know how I found it this way, but it was it's actually for sale like on, you know, the band The Dwarves. Mm-hmm. Their their website or or their their merch company had this uh, disc for sale, and I've been trying to track it down forever, and I came across it there, so done. Um, now, it has several on the tree on this comp. It has the band Noise Addict, which had uh, Lou Barlow in it. That's that Ben Lee band. Uh, Stefan Edgerton has a track on it called E9. E9 is a instro track where Stefan plays all of the, the instruments. It sounds very, very all, mm. and uh, it's a really cool track. Mike Johnson, uh, bass player for Dinosaur Jr. for a period, has a track on here, No One to Love, Parts 1 and 2. It's kind of a sleepy Mike Johnson track. He, a lot of his stuff is kind of like that. Uh, Bob Burt does the song The Trip. It's a Kim Fowley cover, so there's a Bob Burt track on here. And then uh, the main reason I was tracking it down, and now I've got several versions of this, but I wanted this one too, Mike Watt and the Missing Men doing the Rocky Erickson track, Sweet Honey Pie. Very cool version on here. Now, this comp is really cool, not just for the SST stuff, but it also has a couple of other bands that we like. It has a track by Matt Cameron from Soundgarden and Pearl Jam. It's a great Matt Cameron solo track. It totally just sounds like a mashup of Pearl Jam and Soundgarden, but mostly Soundgarden. Great track. Steve Turner from Mudhoney has a track on here. Now, here's the other track that I would love for you to listen to and let me know what you think. Brothers of the Sonic Cloth. Mm, Tad That's Doyle. The, Tad Doyle. He does a cover of the Elvis Costello song, Pump It Up. Mm, I have the the full links. Yeah. yeah. Well, I, I thought you would. Yeah. Um, I love Tad. I've not really followed him into Brothers of the Sonic Cloth. I knew you would, but you got to hear this cover song of Elvis Costello's song, Pump It Up on this comp. It's a mind blower. On it. Okay. Third comp on the tree. We're still in the comp zone here. Now, this one, I'm pretty sure you've mentioned it before, but I finally got it and was able to check it out so i wanted to mention it be you know especially for you our resident tipsy gypsy i wanted to mention this to you okay um now we've talked about this record label imaginary records before mm-hmm. they're the ones who do all those great tribute records like time between a tribute to the birds that has the dinosaur junior track on it i feel a whole lot better the other one that i have or other ones i have i should say uh, Shangri-La, a tribute mm-hmm. to the Kinks. That's yep. a great one. Chesterfield Kings on there. The Thanes, the Flesh Tones. Uh, who else is on here? The Cataran. So another great tribute. One of my faves, because it's totally out there, is the Fast and Bulbous <laughs> Captain Beefheart yep. tribute comp, which has the Dog-Faced Hermans, XTC, the Scientists, the Membranes, that Petrol Emotion, Sonic Youth, so also on the tree, the Screaming Dizbusters. But here's the one that I got recently that I wanted to mention to you. This is the Stoned Again, got it. Rolling, Rolling Stones. I knew you would. And 
Nikki it, Sutton's on it, I believe. It's actually David Cusworth and the Bounty Hunters. They do the song Child of the Moon, one of the standout tracks for sure. It also has Death of Samantha doing a great track. The Membranes are on here as well. But Henry Kaiser Band has a track on here, which is wild. They do the song Tell Me. So, again, many of these Imaginary Records tribute comps are on the SS Tree Thought I'd raise that since I finally got this Stones one. It's kind of cool. My favorite track is actually by a band called The Family Cat. They do the song Rocks Off. Don't know anything about them. Got to check them out. Some of the bands that are on here on some of these comps, they some of them don't seem to be like real bands. Like they're kind of just put together mm-hmm. to, to do a cover track. Not sure about that, um, but I got to check out The Family Cat. Haven't dug into them. They have another standout track for me too. Yeah, I haven't listened to that one in forever. Might be time to to give it a spin. Yeah, like Henry Kaiser doing a Rolling Stones song is, that's like the duofecta for Brent. Yeah. (laughs) Right? Yeah. So, and it's funny too, like it has Henry Kaiser band licensed from SST Records on the back of the tribute comp, right? Awesome. So it's, yeah, it's even better. So that's it, man. Many on the tree. As usual, SST, the tree just keeps on growing. Mm-hmm. You want to get into some screaming trees? Speaking of the trees. Yeah, man. History lesson, part one. All right, Brent. So, as I said at the at the outset, you know, spoiler alert, we're big fans of the trees. And we've had them on a couple of times before. Their first album, Clairvoyance on Velvetone, uh, was never re-released on SST, but the other world's 12 inch SST 105, we had that on the show before. That was originally on Velvetone, and we had Gary Lee Connor on the show. People should go back and check that one out. Super cool. And then the last time we had the trees was SST 132, even if and especially when. Another great trees record we have on this episode Invisible Lantern. You mentioned in the interview with Mark that it's a high point. It is mentioned in numerous places when you read up on this record that it is it's often called out as like a high point for the trees on the sst era and it surely is yeah it really is we should mention who plays in the band um i'm sure everybody listening to this already knows but sometimes we get shit for not referencing (laughs) names (laughs) that are going to pop up in interviews so it's van connor and on bass Gary Lee Connor, his brother on guitar and organ, Mark Lanigan on vocals, and our guest, Mark Pickerel on drums. Yeah, I've actually got like a really good spiel out of a book that I pulled off the shelf that will really set the stage for this brand, um, oh. if that makes sense. Yeah. Hit okay. Me. Okay. So this is from a book called The Strangest Tribe. How a Group of Seattle Rock Bands Invented Grunge. This is by Stephen Toe, or Tao, from Sasquatch Books, Seattle. Love that. When I was listening to this, I kind of feel like the Screaming Trees did invent grunge. Yeah, kind of, right? And and they're also kind of Sasquatches. This one, this book is from 2011, and it's, you know, there are zillions upon zillions of books on grunge. I've got a dozen or so. Uh, This is a pretty cool one that kind of goes band by band for a number of chapters. And here is the main 
Screaming Trees bio section that I think really sets us up for this episode. Okay. okay. Yep. Here we go. It, it The lead-in is the author's telling the reader about how Sub Pop is kind of really picking out its Sub Pop bands that will describe the Sub Pop sound. And here it goes into the Screaming Trees. As Sub Pop got going with its chosen bands, another group would arrive from Ellensburg playing in a similar vein, Screaming Trees. Unlike the Sub Pop bands, however, the trees added a more melodic structures and psychedelia to their sound. Further, the trees developed their following and recorded output virtually independent of the Seattle scene. By the time they arrived in Seattle in 1988, the trees had already recorded with Los Angeles' SST records and thus had no need of further street cachet from Sub Pop. Ellensburg sits in a valley about an hour east of Seattle on the opposite side of the Cascade Mountains. Despite its close proximity, however, it is a world away from bustling Seattle. Unlike the lush, damp forests and hills of the Seattle region, Ellensburg is basically flat and features an almost desert-like landscape. The mountain road crossing the Cascades can be difficult to navigate during the winter months, further isolating the town. Ellensburg is home to Central Washington University, which contributes to the town's unusual mixture of students, farmers, and cowboys. Screaming trees emerged from that environment. Unfortunately for Ellensburg's young rock music fans, country music dominated local radio. Trees drummer Mark Pickerel lived on the same road as the country-oriented KXLE, and I literally picked up that country station, Pickerel remembers, almost from one end of the radio dial to the other. It was so bad that country music literally came out of the telephone, and a lot of it was canned. Oftentimes, it was the same playlists every day, so it was really just this reoccurring country nightmare. The Trees' first incarnation, including Pickerel, as well as brothers Gary Lee and Van Connor on guitar and bass, respectively, began in 1983, its members barely in high school. The Connors' father and elementary school principal set up the band's first gig at a third-grade assembly. We were literally playing the Sex Pistols' God Save the Queen in front of the third-graders, Pickerel recalls. Yeah, I I read that in the Mark Yarm book. They, yeah. tell, they tell the same story in there. Yeah. Within a year, Van Connor befriended Mark Lanigan, who tried to replace Pickerel on drums. That didn't last once Lanigan stepped in front of the microphone. As he began to sing, Pickerel and, Con- and the Connor brothers stared at each other as he effortlessly broadcasted a velvety smooth baritone reminiscent of The Doors' Jim Morrison. And a star was born, says Pickerel. He was great. We immediately knew that he was our singer. Early trees sounded like Maud era Who. Soon afterward, the band crossed paths with producer Steve Fisk, who at the time was living in Ellensburg and was working at a new studio in town called Velvetone. In 1985, the band recorded its first EP, Otherworlds. Fisk was immediately impressed. They really rocked, Fisk recalls. It was a very wonderful record to record. They set up in a line like they were on stage and recorded, and they smiled at each other And it was like a performance. I'd never done anything like that in a recording studio. It was very exciting and very different. Gary Lee became the band's key songwriter, drawing influences from obscure 60s garage and psychedelic rock. The band's sound began to become more raucous, fueled in part by Gary Lee's use of ear-piercing feedback. The version of Screaming Trees that I helped record was a lot of feedback, says Fisk. 
and a lot of shit flying around on stage and big men jumping up and down and kicking things and three or four guitar tracks all feeding back at the end of each song. In 1986, the Trees recorded their first full-length LP, Clairvoyance. Shortly thereafter, the band inked a deal with SST. Pickerel had introduced the Trees to SST's Greg Ginn when he gave him a demo tape at a Black Flag concert. That meeting, along with Fisk's connections to SST, got the band a deal with arguably the country's most respected independent label. SST's roster then included Sonic Youth, The Meat Puppets, Husker Du, and Dinosaur Jr., by 1988, the Trees had already recorded three LPs for SST, who had also re-released Other Worlds. The band's prolific recording, combined with its SST panache, gave it instant street cred in Seattle. In Seattle, screaming trees are generally respected, Anderson wrote in the June-July 1988 issue of Backlash. The entire music scene tries to cram itself into the Central Tavern each time they play there. Hmm. Yeah. Awesome. Like, as I'm listening to you, I'm just listening to that story. I'm thinking about, again, all the connections, you know, the Steve Fisk connection, the Soundgarden connection, which you'll hear about in the interview. Yep. Just kind of how it all went down. Yeah. Love that you guys talked about Truly for a bit there. Can't wait for the Truly re-releases to come out this year, hopefully. Yeah. The Ray Farrell factor the yes pe the pell-mell connection all of it yes yeah you know here's the all music review by vincent jeffries that i kind of thought set the stage a little a little bit too on their third full-length re release the band further refined their early psychedelic garage sound the group had become a bona fide cult success by the time of this release but the indie scene was losing steam and this disc while superior to earlier efforts didn't garner enough critical or commercial attention to move the band into the mainstream. Hmm. The music of Invisible Lantern is spirited and raw, a swirling garage pop that, while repetitive, has a character all its own. Definitely. Ryan, you want to send it over to Mark? Yeah, man. All right, we're joined on the podcast today by Mark Pickerel. Mark, thanks for being on the show. Absolutely. Glad to be here. All right, so we're talking about Invisible Lantern, but I, w I just want to go back... A little ways sure tell me about Ellensburg tell me about the town I'm from a small town so I'm curious what's like what's the how many people live in Ellensburg what was it like growing up there yeah I'll, I'll try to um, I'll try to characterize it as it was or, or um, how I remember it back in uh, the early to mid 80s and uh, at the time at least to uh, those of us in the band, it felt very desolate and dusty, windy, isolated, um, and culturally deprived. <laughs> um, and it's it's come a long way since then. But yeah, it was a it was a it was a challenging place to grow up for those of us who were fascinated with culture and music and uh, and uh, cities and. Um, yeah, we, we just we felt uh, very far removed from from all the things that we wanted to experience. Mm -hmm. um, but but with that said, it also had uh, a fairly progressive university, and so we met a lot of kids from uh, the other side of the mountains, or I should say, like the west side, Seattle, and Bellevue, Redmond, Tacoma, um, places like that. So we had 
so we had some friends that were like really into punk rock and and uh, into new wave and underground and so there was a, a little community i wouldn't call it a scene but there was a community here of of like-minded youths that uh we hung out with and and uh who turned us on to different bands and that that helped a lot would it have been big enough to have its own like scene would was there like nobody came to the university to play or, or like was there a radio station at the university anything like that there actually was there there was a there's a college station here although it was, it was um what was considered cable rock you actually had mm-hmm. to have like yep. cable hooked up <laughs> to your stereo to uh to enjoy it i, I know it i did, know it yeah it did, yeah you know that yeah how, how that'll work yeah and then i actually did have um i did get to enjoy that station and they did occasionally play some good music. And uh, on one particular day, I I did a call in for some contest and won. And uh, when and I thought I was just winning. I thought I just won uh, one record. But I went down to the station and they let me pick out ten ten records from the promo stacks. And I got like Gun Clubs Miami and um, REM's uh, Murmur and. Um, all Susie and the Banshees, the singles collection, are you know just all these great records, most of which I had only maybe a few of them were artists that I had heard on MTV or that I'd heard about through friends, but a lot of them I just picked up because the covers were cool. But that that just that one particular experience turned me on to a whole bunch of new bands, and uh, that was like my freshman year in high school, so it would have been around like eighty. 82 or something like that. Now, before you started working with Steve Fisk, I, correct me if I'm wrong, but you knew him first uh, as a fan of his music. Yeah, I was working at a little record store called Ace Records, um, and I bought this seven-inch single by this artist called Anonymous and noticed that uh, they had a P.O. box for an Olympia address, and I was really um, intrigued that there was a group doing, uh, creating the kind of music that they were, uh, from right here with, within, uh, our state. And, uh, you know, I was really fascinated by that. And so I wrote to anonymous and got a, a letter back from Steve Fisk. Mm-hmm. And in the letter, I should dig it out someday and share it with everybody. Um, in the letter, he revealed that he had a friend here in Ellensburg who was going to be re- starting a recording studio and that I should go check it out. And then maybe four to six months later, Steve actually just appeared here. Uh, it, it turned out that between the time he wrote me the letter and by the time, next thing I knew, he had arrived here to go to work at the, at the studio, uh, at uh, Sam Mulbride's studio. Mm-hmm. So, uh, pretty cool. And he came in and introduced himself to me. I was working at the video store that was also the Screaming Trees practice space. And, um, and Steve came in and introduced himself and how he heard through the grapevine that, that members of the Screaming Trees were, um, or not the members of the Screaming Trees were working there, but that, that the kid that had written him the letter was working at the store and that I was in a band. And, you know, anyway, he came in and introduced himself to us and, it just so happened that about a week earlier, Gary Lee had finished these demos of songs that would eventually become Other Worlds. Mm-hmm. And so we had this demo cassette of a lot of those songs with like Lee, Lee singing the, you know, Lee singing and 
playing all the all the parts. So I shared one of those with Steve, and he came back like a week later, really in, in, with a, you know a really enthusiastic uh, review of the the cassette, and suggested that we you know discuss a recording session. And so that's kind of how we we started our relationship with Steve and and uh, and Sam's studio. Mm-hmm. Do you remember the first show that you went to that you would have that you would classify as a punk rock band? Well, one of the very first shows that we went to was in Seattle. I mean, it might not have been the first, but we did travel to Seattle to see Black Flag. Uh, that was like my, during my junior year. Uh, it might have been the very beginning of my senior year. And uh, that's where I gave Greg Ginn that same cassette. Actually, not not the demo cassette, but, we, but I gave him a copy of Other Worlds that we that we'd finished with Steve. And uh, that's how we introduced ourselves to um, SST, who would eventually sign us. So before Ray Farrell kind of got involved, you had already kind of made the connection. (laughs) Right. Yeah. In fact, uh, after we recorded our first full length with Steve Clairvoyance, he sent that to his good friend, Ray Farrell, who was working at SST at the time. And, Ray passed a copy of it along to Greg, and and Greg um, mentioned to him that he'd already been enjoying our demo tape or our, the Other Worlds cassette that I gave him when they played in Seattle. So yeah. Now, are you the same age as as Van, or are you younger? I mean, you're younger. I'm the I'm the baby of the bunch. Okay. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I was like I was a freshman when we all started playing together, and Lee had already. We had graduated from high school, like maybe a year or two before I got into high school, and uh, Mark was a couple years ahead of me, and Van was just—I think Van was just a year ahead of me. So, like when I got to high school, I was a freshman. Van was a sophomore. Lanigan was a, a junior, I think. Mm-hmm. Maybe a senior. I can't remember for sure. So, by the time you're signed to SST probably aren't even driving a car yet <laughs> <laughs> i was not you're right yeah we so we we i i don't think we officially signed with sst until like maybe the fall after my senior year mm. um <laughs> so i know it sounds crazy thinking back on it that and it you know at the time it felt like we'd waited so long for that kind of you know uh, recognition or right. validation or you know and if that was only like 19. <laughs> <laughs> what do you think it is about that area? Most punk rockers, I mean, maybe it's the isolation factor, but I feel like most punk rockers then and now, when maybe it's getting better now, just really shunned, you know, classic rock or, you know, 60s music, contemporary rock, like ACDC or something like that. And, mm-hmm. you know, it mm-hmm. seems like you and the Connor brothers and, and Mark and, and and some of the other bands that you know from that era era, to me that's that's the sound is melding the punk rock and and the ethos with yeah with classic rock because we couldn't really we couldn't really escape it you know and we so we didn't have we couldn't be especially particular about what <laughs> we got to listen to you know what I mean yeah so we you know if we were in grocery stores we were hearing a lot of country music out here and a lot of hillbilly music. Um, if we were at 
a high school kegger. We were going to hear ACDC. We were going to hear Creedence Clearwater. And so, you know, we, we didn't really have the pleasure of just deciding what kind of music we were going to hear everywhere we went. And thankfully, we, and, and, you know, and a lot of the music that we, we were exposed to was really great. And um, a lot of that we can probably thank the Connor parents for, or Kathy Connor specifically for. Um, she used to take Gary Lee out yard sailing all the time, and, you know, they'd come back with Rolling Stones records and Cream and Love. And, and then he was a huge record collector. You know, he, he continued living at his parents' house into his uh, uh, mid-20s. And was working a couple of jobs, and his usually his entire paychecks would go towards uh, records. So he'd drive to Seattle or he'd drive to Yakima and come back with, you know, a stack of like 15 or 30 import records and psychedelic reissues of, you know, obscure psychedelic bands. Um, Love, the 13th Floor Elevators, the Pebbles compilations, mm-hmm. uh, all that stuff. So he had a big library in his in his bedroom and so that that became uh, a source for all of us to um to listen to and learn from and so we you know we we were um absorbing as much underground influence as we could but simultaneously we were also all influenced by you know just the music that was on the airwaves and that we were hearing at friends homes and you know parties and stuff like that and uh, and I you know and like I said before I mean a lot of it was great Creedence Clearwater The Doors obviously bands like that had a big influence on our sound and on Lee's writing you know I think we were aware that as much as we love punk rock or as much as we might like you know a new wave of British bands like Echo and the Bunnymen Susie and the Banshees and that kind of stuff we'd all like kind of studied up enough on the history of rock and roll to know that these are all just different trends, you know, whether mm-hmm. it's punk rock or new wave or whatever, like that, that to suggest that there was only, you know, one kind of music that was relevant would be, you know, inaccurate. And so we wanted to showcase and profile all these different influences and, uh, uh unashamed of that, you know, yeah, I, I think for me it's like what you said, showcasing it. Because, you know, I mean, you'll hear people like Henry Rollins, for example, will say that he and Ian Mackay were listening to Thin Lizzy and Ted Nugent, but they didn't incorporate it into their music, you know? Right, yeah. And and we may have been, we may have had, you know, obviously we, you know, especially if you listen to like the first couple releases, uh, Other Worlds specifically, I mean, it was it's really kind of a time capsule and it's really evident that that Gary Lee was had really fine-tuned his process and that he, he was trying to emulate um, a specific period of 60s garage rock mm-hmm. um, but within a couple of years we started to really broaden our um, our sound and started to you know incorporate bands like Cream and Hendrix and and then we were getting turned on to groups like the Meat Puppets and Husker Du uh, even like groups like the Cult and Echo and the Bunnymen and so we and, we and we could hear that those bands were starting to create music that was reminiscent of classic rock or that had, had some roots in classic rock and so I mean you could hear the Doors influence 
and the Rolling Stones' influence in Echo and the Bunnymen. You could hear Steppenwolf's influence on on the cult. Um, you know, things like that. We thought, well, hey, we, we grew up with all those bands, too. You know, um, so maybe it's okay for us to start showcasing some of those influences and you know uh and it was it was kind of liberating Mm -hmm. um and it made it more way more fun for sure (laughs) when that when all of those influences weren't off limits anymore it made the whole process way more fun and and we discovered that we were better players than we thought as well in fact uh, when i think back to that first session we did where we were trying to really um uh, emulate a specific sound and a specific um, aesthetic that was kind of difficult as a drummer for me to do and but when we started broadening the scope um, it it gave me a lot more freedom to um, to to play much more naturally mm-hmm. and therefore you know gave me a lot of space to grow what about some of these other like garage rock revival bands that were around at the time, like say the Chesterfield Kings, like were you aware of those bands when you started touring? Did you get compared to those bands? Like they're obviously deliberate throwback. So I'm not, I'm not comparing the two, but. Oh, I don't mind. Oh, I don't know. I don't mind um, referencing those bands at all. And we, we were aware of them. Um, I would say that we might've been into a couple of them, but I have to say we, you know, like Red Cross was happening at the mm-hmm. time, and their take on all of that, well, with their record Neurotica, like we were all big fans of that record and that band. In fact, they had us open for them um, on the Neurotica tour a few times, and those shows went great, and they were amazing and everything. Uh, and we loved bands like the Dream Syndicate, for instance, mm-hmm. and they were an influence on us. We were huge fans of the Gun Club, although we didn't really see them being part of the Paisley Underground like some of those other bands, but, um, and Mark was especially self-conscious about us being lumped in with those groups. And so that might've been one of the other reasons why we started letting some of these other influences in because we didn't, we really didn't want to be, um, associated with that scene. And even though we may have looked the parts and even though some of our music like fit right in with those bands, we, we, um, we didn't really want to go in that direction. Mm-hmm. Okay, so you mentioned Velvetone. I believe every record up to and including Invisible Lantern was recorded at Velvetone, but this one, correct me if I'm wrong, was engineered by Rod Doak, and I'm pretty sure we've seen him before. Mm-hmm. Now, was he also your tour tech by this point? Yeah, yeah. He was uh, our sound man um, and had been for probably two or three years. I think he started going out with us on our very first tours. And I know he did. And he was a good friend of ours from like way back. He, he, he'd known Mark for many years and I had known him since I was in junior high. If I remember right, he was, uh, I, I keep dropped out of high school and was, you know, worked at, you know, worked in a kitchen and had, had a, you know, lived with his girlfriend and had a cool apartment. I mean, I remember, I, I don't remember how I met him, but I remember like walking home from school a couple of times and a friend of mine knew him and like, he's like, Oh yeah, come check out my apartment. And, you know, we, we went in and he had like really great stereo system and, you know, a bunch of really deep album 
collection and cool posters all over the place and everything. Anyway, so I, I had kind of looked up to him from the time I was uh, in junior high and uh, found out later that he did sound for bands. And by the, so by the time we needed a sound man, either he heard about us or I knew about him and somehow we connected with him. And so he started doing sound for the, for the, um, for the trees immediately. And uh, in fact, his brother did lights for us and, you know, we all traveled together for um, quite some time. And then his, you know, his um, brother um, who had a small family, you know, uh, he had to um, stay home after a certain point when, you know, it became evident that there was just not enough money to support, uh, you know, his family. Mm -hmm. I didn't even remember that Rod Doak engineered that record, but that's because he just was working with us all the time anyway. So that would have been a really easy transition or um, development. Um, and I'm sure Steve, you know, um, Steve probably worked closely with him on, on all of that. And so, again, um, not to diminish his involvement, but I didn't even remember that he he specifically worked on that because I was just used to him being around all the time anyway. Yeah. So really fun guy to have around. Well, Steve's credited as producer, and those lines do get right. blurred from time to time in yeah, the studio. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. And eventually he went on a uh, rod. I know ended up producing um, the purple outside record that, that Lee also recorded at Velvetone. Mm -hmm. Like Lee's solo record. Yeah. It was recorded in the winter of 88. Do you remember the sessions at all? Were they, you know, was it a marathon session? Was it multiple sessions? I do remember that session um, primarily because it was the first record we did where I felt really confident as a drummer and uh, proud to be part of that rhythm section and, and, the, and that band. Um, I felt like we had finally, like the, the touring that we had done, the amount of shows that we had under our belt, the chemistry that we developed, the um, um, confidence that we developed, all of these things are really evident to me um, when listening to that record, which I did today just to have familiarize myself with this so we could talk about it i think it's the first great screaming trees mm -hmm. record and uh, i mean I, I i'm happy and proud of, of all of them to a certain extent but i think that's the first record like that really really showcases everyone's talent and really it really reveals what a gift gary lee had as a writer it really um showcases mark's um voice in a way that the, the previous records mm -hmm. hadn't quite captured and his artistry and um, his ability to, um, you know, he, he, he worked on a lot of those lyrics to make a lot of the lyrics his own. Uh, Van and I as a rhythm section had really developed a chemistry that, that is evident on that, on that particular record. And so, so I remember the session, I don't remember the details of the session um, or any, specific drama or anything like that. I just remember the feeling of it and and feeling like we were capturing a lot of songs within like two to four takes, which is, you know, says a lot. Mm -hmm. So that, that you know, that, that that tells you like how well rehearsed we were because we've been playing a lot of those shows out on the road and it's because we were a tighter band. I do remember that there were a lot of discussions about the production 
which is what led to um, the, the particular mix that that like that people either love or they I don't want to say that they hate, but a lot of people um, can't help but notice that the that the drums are are buried. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and you know that, that bothered me at the time, and I and a lot of that can be attributed to Mark's um, insistence that the record sound a lot like the 13th Floor Elevators productions, which also tended to place the drums uh, in the background. Interesting. And he was really into like and he was really into like the, the Wipers, um, Youth of America, Youth of America, and uh, like I said, the Elevators and the and uh, Gun Clubs Miami, which also kind of didn't bury the drums, but the drums weren't like prevalent um, part of the mix um, or a prominent part of the mix. And that was really at odds at the time with where 80s production was going. You know, like like the replacements and Red Cross and all these bands, who's to do? Everyone was mixing the drums way up front. Right. And that was a, and so Invisible Lantern was a, a real contrast to that. And at the time, I was really self conscious about it and kind of resentful that, that my best drumming to date was buried. You know, <laughs> but listening to it now doesn't bother me anymore i think that the the record overall sonically is is pretty impressive and really cool and that you know that the decision to mix the record that way might have served us in the long run i I don't really know um but i am really proud of the record so yeah well i you definitely should be it's a great album and i i think many people consider it the peak of the sst years for sure Mm mm-hmm yeah, I, I would too. Um, you know, I mean, there's part of me that would like to hear a remix of it, the way I remember us performing and performing those songs and how, and how they sounded live. Um, but I don't, you know, it's it's not like I can't enjoy the record as it is. I, right. I do, and I, I, you know, I think so that the, the the guitar textures are really uh, have a lot of personality, and uh, again. Uh, Mark's singing is, is uh, especially impressive on that record, and the lyrics are really cool, and the themes are great. The songwriting is top-notch. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I'm I'm, uh, I'm down. Were these songs road-tested? I think a few of them were. Like, I remember Smoke Rings, we did quite a bit. Ivy, we did quite a bit. Lines and Circles, we played a lot. I don't remember, like, which ones we started playing before we recorded and which ones we didn't introduce until after we recorded. But I, I do think Smoke Rings, Lines and Circles, Ivy, maybe maybe Walk Through to This Side, I think some of those songs were were, were part of a few of our sets before, before going in to record. But, I, you know, I, I can't remember exactly the sequence of events. Okay. You mentioned touring, and there's a few bands in the thank you list I want to... I'm just curious about your connection to. One being Danger, yeah, Danger Mouse, a, a bit of a band lost to the ages. I, if, I believe we're talking about the Tacoma Danger Mouse. Yes, yeah. Yeah, tell me about that band. Yeah, and um, that's how we recruited Donna Dresch on bass to um, to replace Van when he when he stayed home from uh, at least one tour. Yeah, we, we played a couple couple shows with Danger Mouse, uh, I think one here in Ellensburg and maybe one in Olympia, and just really dug them and, and had a good time with them and everything. And, and uh, 
like I said, that's how we ended up meeting um, meeting Donna. Moral crux. Yeah, and so moral crux. They're they're a band just right down the, the road from us. They came out of Ephrata Moses Lake area, mm-hmm. and the reason we made a connection with them is a, is an especially interesting one. Lanigan was working out in uh, Eastern Washington harvesting peas. And, uh, this guy, James Ferris, he, he got, he got to know this guy, James Ferris while working on a job. And it turned out that James was a singer in this band called moral crux. And anyway, he, he, um, he gave Mark a, a cassette of their like latest recordings or whatever. And Mark really dug it. And, Anyway, they beca- they became good friends, and um, we ended up booking. It might have been the same show that I was discussing earlier, where we 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 had to book a, a live show um, when SST was considering signing us. They wouldn't do so without hearing a live recording of us or seeing us live or whatever. So we we booked our own show at this community center here in town and brought moral crux over as part of that gig um, so that we could record our show. And of course, our sound man, Rod Doak, that you asked about uh, earlier, recorded the, the set and we sent it to SST and that was what firmed up our, our deal with them. Anyway, but another side note um, about the, the moral crux connection that's interesting is that uh, when Mark was working out there, you know, he was working on one of these gigantic big, combines and uh, anyway he he fell and like, I think it was his, his left leg was run over by this massive machine yeah. and he almost he almost lost his leg and uh, while he was in the hospital the doctor discovered how much liver damage he um, already incurred at a young age from from alcohol and he kind of gave Mark a come to Jesus talk and warned him that if you know if you keep drinking at the rate you are, you know you're not going to live to see the age of thirty. Right. And so Mark went. Mark was already like kind of a raging alcoholic by then. And uh, but that particular experience um, was a big wake up call. And he you know he just immediately went cold turkey and didn't didn't drink from like God, almost from around the time of clairvoyance until I left the band. Wow, yeah. Um, a lot of people, you know, assumed that I was, that I had to deal with Mark's um, drug and alcohol use while I was in the band, but the reality is that all the years that we were uh, touring and recording, he was sober. Mm-hmm. You mentioned van leaving, so that happens obviously after Invisible Lantern, but before the touring cycle. That could be that, or it might have been between, um, even if and especially when an invisible lantern. Mm. No, I think you're right. I think it happened after invisible lantern because I, I could swear I remember Donna playing on 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 a lot of those songs or play, playing those particular songs from Invisible Lantern uh, when we went out. So that makes sense. But um, one thing I'm 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 not clear on anymore is uh, is dates. I. Mm-hmm. Um, I always thought I would be because when growing <laughs> up, I was really into just because of my interest in, in different scenes and different bands and stuff like that. I, I was really good at filing dates away um, um, when it came to other people's 
careers and 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 discographies and stuff. But looking back on all that now, like I I don't I can't remember it's, when things happened. It's hard to retain that stuff. <laughs> And you know what? Well, and when it's in your own life too, it just yeah. seems so irrelevant. Like it's your memories that are important to you, and mm-hmm. um, your overall impression of different things that happened in your life. But the, the dates and we, you know, it just it's just not important to, to me anymore. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe that's what it is. But yeah, I, I used to be, yeah. you know, an encyclopedia of, you know musicians and who played in what band yeah. and what album yeah. came out when and I just cannot retain Same that here. stuff <laughs> yeah uh, when Donna comes in how did that change the dynamic because you know obviously the brothers thing is is what it is it's there's a family dynamic there and mm-hmm. well you know that, that was interesting and it was kind of hard I will say I really enjoyed playing with Donna uh she did a great job filling in for Van, and and Van is an incredible, um, Van's an incredible player as well. But what was especially missing was just that. So on one on one hand, just by the nature of her being a girl, that sort of that brought kind of a peaceful component to the the dynamic of in the Van. That that um, cut, but through, also, cut through the testosterone a little bit, maybe. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But it also kind of prevented everyone from being them, themselves to the degree mm-hmm. that they wanted to be. Now that's not her fault, and no. and and I I kind of enjoyed having the van get classed up a little bit. It was kind of nice. Um, on the other hand, it it didn't feel as natural uh, to us. But where I'm going with this is that while there was some added value to having her amongst us, um, it also felt really great to have Van back uh, when he did rejoin. And uh, even if that did mean that, that you know there, there would be more fighting and you know more debauchery um, and you know more name calling, uh, all of that. You know, mm-hmm. um, it, but at least everybody, you know, felt a little less guarded or, um, uh, well, that's not the word I was looking for, but, um, yeah, I know, I yeah, know what you mean. no one, yeah, no one had to pretend. Now, some of this comes off the internet, so you mm-hmm. probably have to correct some of this, but the lost album, I'm using air quotes right now that you recorded with Donna when she was in the band with Vic, yeah. with Vic Makuskis, who I'm assuming it should read Phil Newman, and I'm assuming we're talking about Spinhead Studios. Uh, yes. Now, yeah. How did that happen? I'm assuming you were on tour and you popped mm-hmm. in at Spinhead. Uh, do you know, like, were most of those songs later reused for, for say, Buzz Factory? Yeah, a lot of the songs ended up. A lot of those songs ended up on Buzz Factory. Hmm. I don't remember exactly how that developed or why Spinhead or Phil was recommended to us. Um, we were just in discussions with SST about, you know, wanting to get get to work on wanting to get to work on, you know, a new record and 
I think we I think we were anxious to just try to experiment outside of you know we, we've been making records the exact same way for a few years now and you know I guess maybe just the, the idea of recording a record in LA itself was intriguing to us and mm-hmm. but I don't remember how his name or why his name was presented to us or but the studio was was rather primitive. In fact, I remember when Mike Watt came in, he, he was even kind of perplexed uh, that we had arrived there. <laughs> and um, yeah, the, the sessions weren't particularly magical and the results weren't particularly magical. I don't remember disliking this stuff, but I also don't remember, you know, being especially excited about this stuff. I haven't heard of stuff in in many years mm-hmm. except for a couple of songs that have surfaced on online um but you know they're not mastered and i don't even know i think they might have just been pulled from cassettes um so you know it's not a really good representation there are the best representation of what we accomplished there unfortunately the master tapes are are lost and so mm-hmm. i don't know that we'll ever really hear a, a good example of what we accomplished but yeah uh, the front cover of Invisible Lantern, Daniel Heron, is friend of the band, I'm assuming? Yeah, and that, that painting was actually inside the studio. Ah. Um, and I think it was, a, I think Dan had given it to Sam. That's the way I remember it, that the painting was actually in the studio, a huge painting. And um, Lanigan especially loved it, and so we immediately you know, asked for permission to use it. And then um, Mark's girlfriend, Jenna Scott, was uh, uh, a graduate student at um, up at Central's art department. And so uh, it was only natural that she helped us design the album cover and did all the cool lettering and even did the back, um, the photo shoot from the, for the back cover. And we did all that up, at, up on campus in the art department. Tell me about your connection with SST and Soundgarden. Yeah. Um, well, there was another example of Soundgarden had... It, it's funny in retrospect to think that Soundgarden um, had already done their first release, Screaming Life, with Sub Pop, but wanted to do a, a record. And they were already being courted by A&M. In fact, I think they'd already signed their contract with A&M. But they wanted to do one more record on an indie label. And at that time, Sub Pop was still rather obscure. You know, they hadn't really become the, 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 the household name by then. And, you know, of course they were as impressed with SST's roster as we were, and they knew that we were on SST. And so there was a discussion about maybe, you know, having them do a record, just a one-off with SST. And uh, and I think I don't remember if I originally contacted SST to to kind of pitch Soundgarden um, in their direction or um, or to, to pitch Soundgarden as a prospect, but but uh, at some point Soundgarden faced the same thing that we faced with SST, which was that um, in order for SST to go forward with a, a signing, they would need to hear the band live, and and since um, Soundgarden didn't have any California dates on the horizon. It turned out that Soundgarden was going to do a show here in 
Owensburg on campus with Faith No More. Oh, wow. And so once again, our, our sound man, Rod Doak, recorded the session, and I sent in the cassette, and there you have it. That's how, that's how Soundberg <laughs> ended up on SST. I still have that, that particular cassette. I just came across it the other day. Oh, wow. Like It's like a board recording or oh. something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah, so that's how that all went down. And it's kind of ironic because just recently I had to call Kim, Kim File to ask him for advice on how they got out of their SSD contract. And so he put me in touch with a lawyer who is now um, representing the Screaming Trees in, in, a, in an attempt to um, uh, retrieve our, our master recordings and, and uh, to to take them somewhere else. Oh, very interesting. Well, yeah. I so I helped him get signed to SST, and now he's trying to help me help us get off of SST. <laughs> mm. Well, I won't push you too hard on that. Um, I'm sure there's yeah, uh, legal stuff going on behind the scenes, but uh, I'm interested to see where that goes. Yeah, yeah. As as someone who's me listened too. to to many of these records and often lamented on our show that there is most of them are out of print and there's certainly no uh remastered you know in, right. in an right. era where every single label with a with a back catalog nowhere near like the one sst is is remastering their their artists it's it's a real shame it is hey, you know if i want to mention a lot of people you know when they kind of ask about how it was that um you know, the Screaming Trees enjoyed success so early on. And this is part of the story that people probably don't think of. But the one one of the big advantages to being on SST in the mid to late 80s was that they were one of the few indie labels that put all their artists out on CD. Mm-hmm. And because that, that format just, you know, totally took off globally but it didn't, it wasn't a popular format early on, or maybe it was an intimidating format early on for a lot of indie labels. So people who are really into underground music, if you went and if you, you know, just purchased a CD player, for many years, there weren't a lot of interesting options available on compact disc. Yeah, that's so, a great point. So the Screaming Trees were... were you know, one of, obviously SST's roster was pretty expansive, a lot of, a lot of artists, but so we, but we were part of a very small amount of artists, you know, associated with that genre or underground music whose music was available on compact disc. And, you know, that, that, that was a really, I think a really big benefit to all of us, any of the bands that were on that label at the time. Yeah, it's that's an interesting point. Uh, on our show, we've often wondered aloud about who was buying all these CDs. <laughs> well, I think you know. I mean, if, if, I think a lot of people were, and part of it was because you know, if if you if you're if you had an an adventurous appetite for music, or you know, if you were looking for something different, then it was likely that you were going to come across a few SST titles while you were you know searching for you know an interesting release so yeah i think that really benefited uh, us a, a lot at the time okay fast forwarding a bit to, to after you leave the band tell me about how you met 
Robert Roth and also about the band Storybook Crooks. So I never got to see or hear Storybook Crooks other than maybe a cassette that, that Rob gave me shortly after getting together with him. But I think Robert saw me perform at the Central Tavern, if I remember right. The, the trees were playing there. It might have been the night we opened up for Soundgarden um, for their record release party for Screaming Life. Anyway, um, according to him, he just was really impressed by my drumming. And if he didn't approach me then, it might have been, he may have contacted me through a friend. And I was still in the trees, if I remember right. And he just asked me if I'd, I don't know, he just invited me over to, to, to play music and um, asked me if I would be interested in just maybe. I think he might have asked me if I'd be willing to get together with him and help him develop a couple of songs to possibly record because he was just temporarily without a drummer or something like that. And so we got together. He had a house in in University District, and uh, and I just immediately loved, I just loved his writing. Um, I remember immediately uh, one of the first songs he um, played for me was called The Color is Magic, and it just really turned me on. And his style was really easy for me as a drummer to to um, find my place with. Like I I, I immediately felt like I could um, really showcase um, the diversity of my talent with you know with him like I, I really I really there, there was all these opportunities to play really expressively and employ all of these different styles that I had developed that um, I didn't normally get to apply to or that I didn't always get to to um, exhibit within the screaming trees or, or and anyway, so um, yeah, I just was really um, impressed with his uh, his talents and and uh, his artistry and mm-hmm. and uh, you know cons- I I'd known that Hero had just recently left Soundgarden and so um, and and because truly originally was just going to kind of be this project um, and I I knew that that Hero didn't want to be in a touring band and, you know, and so on. And so, um, I felt safe asking Hero to, to, um, to collaborate with us because I didn't really think there'd be any expectations of him beyond just like, a, you know, maybe a few, um, a few rehearsals and a, and a recording session. Well, of course, then, you know, Robert <laughs> talked us all into starting a, an actual band and, and, uh, there you have it. Right. Yeah. After you left the trees, you knew you wanted to keep doing music. I did, and um, that's kind of a complicated. That's sort of hard for me to to look back and and characterize in a, in a way that is. Um, I mean, let's just say that I I had convinced myself of, of a few things um, that were based on a lot of personal issues that that I was struggling with at the time. Uh, relationship issues, both with um, uh, a girlfriend, uh, with Lanigan, um, and with, with a desire to. Um, I was working at Subcop at the time, and that was that was a really fun um, place to work. And I was kind of kind of starting to see myself as someone who might um, really build a, c- a career in the music business as well as mm-hmm. as playing music, mm-hmm. and. Um, 
and the screaming trees was just that it was you know i i joined the band so so young in life i mean if if i if you look back and think of of the you know the inception of the screaming trees dating back as far as my freshman year in high school you know i'd i'd spent a lot of years playing music with the same people and and i was really i was really burdened by this role that I had developed as a, as a peacekeeper mm-hmm. within the band mm-hmm. and um, how just emotionally exhausting that was. And anyway, there were a lot of different things pulling me in different directions. And uh, so anyway, eventually I, I quit the Screaming Trees. I was still really open to playing in another band or in other bands, um, but outside of truly nothing came along that really intrigued me. Um, like I was asked to join Tad at one point, uh-huh. but as much as I liked Tad, I didn't really, ima- I, I couldn't really picture um, a career with them that I thought would satisfy a lot of my interests. Right. Most of the bands that, that were um, offering me opportunities, I just didn't, think um i was the right fit for or that you know they, they just didn't um and a lot of that was that you know that i was you know i was convinced that the screaming trees were one of the were you know one of the best bands around at the time living up here in the northwest i just wasn't hearing a lot of other bands that were in need of a drummer who i who i really thought of as, as being uh, as talented as the trees and so if i was going to I was going to join another band after quitting the Screaming Trees. My feeling was that it, it had better be a pretty damn good band, you know. Okay. And um, those opportunities just weren't coming along. Of all the stuff you did after Truly, the Dark Fantastic, the the Praying Hands, if nobody's heard any of that stuff, what would you what would you point them to? What are you most proud of? Um, I'm pretty happy. I'm pretty proud of. Um, uh, Mark Pickerel and his praying hands. Um, the album Tess, okay. I, I, I think is like a you know, record. I, I can, I, I feel, I feel proud of. You know, eight years later or ten years later, however long ago it was. And I'm also um, proud of our our new release. Um, I have visions by Pickerel and the Peyote Three. That's just out. Um, just a few months old. Mm-hmm. Where can people find that? That's on Bandcamp, and it's also available through just about any um, online um, platform, from uh, Spotify to Amazon or YouTube, YouTube Music. Mm-hmm. So it's Pickerel and the Peyote 3, I Have Visions. Looking forward to seeing how things pan out with the Screaming Trees back catalog. Glad you're taking yeah, that thanks. step. Once this COVID stuff is over, will there be some touring, maybe? Yeah, you know, and actually... We actually managed to get out and play five outdoor shows in the Seattle area over the last few months, which was really, was just really great, mm. really great experience. Mm-hmm. And uh, we're going to play uh, in Tacoma on March 11th at the uh, Spanish Ballroom. Ah, okay. full band. That's great. Mark, thanks so much for taking the time to talk to me tonight. I really appreciate Absolutely. it. Absolutely. Really enjoyed it. You bet. You have a great night. Awesome. Great to have Mark on the show and to hear kind of how it all went down. Great perspective, too. 
um, with respect to Lanigan, I would mm-hmm. say, because mm-hmm. especially after Lanigan's book, it's hard to kind of get that taste out of your mouth from reading Man- Lanigan's book. And, and I thought Mark gave some good perspective there. Yeah, obviously, I I didn't bring that up because no, no, it's <laughs> I I kind of think some of what he said in there is pretty lame. So yeah, did you did you go back and revisit? Lanigan's chapter on this era of the band again for this episode like I did and he totally just like cruises right past it and mm-hmm. does nothing but shit on people it's pretty lame yeah I, I I I gave it a quick scan I I already knew that there wasn't really any in the way of details it's it's unfortunate that he doesn't rate this era of the band higher I kind of get the impression that it's largely due to uh, and Mark mentions it in the interview that Mark Lanigan really wanted to d- distance the band from, you know, the, a lot of the comparisons they were getting, maybe. Mm-hmm. And I think lyrically, too, he was frustrated singing someone else's lyrics, maybe. Mm. Yeah. But some stuff that I really liked about the interview, I can totally relate to Mark, you know, feeling isolated from all the culture mm-hmm. that, that the band wanted to experience and participate in. Uh really great point about how they kind of studied the history of rock and roll. Yeah. You know, like to them, there wasn't that dividing line, which always kind of fascinates me with a lot of these bands. Uh, Good comparison to Red Cross, actually something I hadn't thought of. He calls this the first great screaming trees record, which it is to me Uh, after hearing what he said about the mix. When I listened to it after that, I, I guess I kind of heard how the drums are mixed low, but I I had not never picked that out previously. No, it it works, but I get it. You could yeah. raise their level in the mix, but I don't think the music suffers as a result. And I totally get as a drummer wanting to hear yourself more, but it it works for me. Yeah, it's not a, like a criticism I found either anywhere online. Mm-hmm. No, it's something maybe people say that have said that to Mark. It's not something I, I see as a common discussion point on this album. Uh, the Donna Dresch Danger Mouse connection. Mm-hmm. If you haven't heard that three-song single from 87, Have Soul Will Travel, you can hear it on YouTube. It's really cool. You should check it out, Ryan, if, if you've never heard it. Donna's bass playing totally stands out. It's mixed super high uh, on the recording. She's definitely playing through like a guitar amp, like Rob Wright or Lemmy or something like that. It's really ah. cool. Right on. And then another band he mentions is Moral Crux, kind of a mm-hmm. 77 style punk rock band. I remember Maximum Rock and Roll being champions of that band, probably because of their politics. I have the reissue of their second record from 89 that Lookout reissued in 2000, and it's really great, but I've never looked any further for some reason. Hmm. So I'm totally going to check out, especially their Velvetone release from 87. Yeah. Yeah, I got to get into some Moral Crux. Lookout is a weird label, like, it really gets pigeonholed for a certain type of music, but there was some cool out there stuff on Lookout that I think has really been forgotten. Yeah, for sure. Uh, Obviously, I'm really interested in the Screaming Trees recovering their master tapes. Yeah. Uh, But my favorite thing he said, is, which is something we've never had a guest say before on this show, is how he thinks... SST being one of the only indie labels that released stuff on CD. Yeah, that was really cool. Yeah, I can totally see that too. (laughs) 
<laughs> I know. Well, just think about like when CDs started arriving. It was it was like, you know, David Bowie CDs from Japan were like the yeah. first stuff that you could buy, right? Indie stuff on CD, forget it. And SST was a total trailblazer. Yeah. Yeah, for sure, man. Well, just releasing stuff on multiple formats like that, mm-hmm. you know? It's a very good point. You read about SST trying to do the cash grab on multiple formats, but what about multiple formats actually providing greater accessibility to the artists? Mm-hmm. Very cool point. Let's get into the record, Ryan. Yeah, man. History lesson, part two. Okay, Brent, let me lay down for you some Invisible Lantern spiels quick before we start getting into the tracks here, okay? First has to be from the Spaceman, shall we? Yeah. Okay, from from the SST catalog, Michael Whitaker, Screaming Trees, Invisible Lantern. Here we go. Just what exactly does a screaming tree sound like? Does it sound like a person screaming, only lower pitched? Not being naturalists, all we know is that the screaming trees sound like a hundred Mack trucks loaded with your fave tunes in a colossal smash-up on the interstate. And it's funny here, it says nine new songs. Hmm. SST 188, LP, cassette, and CD for 13 bucks. Pretty sure there's more than nine songs. There is. So I thought that that was interesting there. I mean, maybe maybe at a point in time, it's like, now nah, we're, we're not going to include these three, and then they decided to keep them on. Don't know. Um Here's from the Trouser Press. Invisible Lantern ups the ante even more as the tree's pop streak matures with smoke rings and especially the marvelous night comes creeping. So true. Mm -hmm. Bassist Van Connor, Gary Lee's brother, left for several months in 88 and was replaced by Donna Dresch, later of Team Dresch. That lineup recorded a Lost to the Ages disc with Painted Willie guitarist Vic Makuskis, all tapes of which vanished when his studio was sold. Another great Lost Trees album, the reportedly rejected follow-up to Sweet Oblivion, was recorded in early 94 with producer Don Fleming. Mm -hmm. Yeah, obviously that is a misprint. It was not Vic Makuskis, as we mentioned in the interview. Yeah. Well, Phil Newman. Ira Robbins doesn't know everything. It's too bad, Ryan, that they don't have that because that would be the perfect second disc for the Buzz Factory reissue when they get their back catalog. Oh, dude, dude. And it's it's out, it's out there somewhere. Yeah. And like for the, they can already, I'm assuming reissue clairvoyance, right? Because it was not on SST. That one can have the live recording that they used to get on SST as the bonus disc. The tape, yeah, because yeah. Mark has it. Yeah. yeah, I can think of no better label, too, to do that kind of box set as, like, Numero. Numero mm-hmm. would crush it on that, hey? Yeah, or Sub Pop, it, even. Yeah, yeah, that's right. I mean, Sub Pop has, did the U-Men yep. box set. You're right. I mean, there are a number of places. I just really dig the Numero uh, reissues. Here is a bit more on Invisible Lantern. This is from a book called Taking Punk to the Masses. From nowhere to never mind. This is the the main book. Like if you go to the the Seattle Museum of Modern Pop History or whatever, I can't remember what it's called, the Mopop. This yeah. is like their main book that they have there 
about the exhibit, uh, as I recall. This one is by Jacob McMurray, Fantagraphics Books. Now, here's a section on specifically on Invisible Lantern in here. And it talks about the painting, the cover painting, which you uh, mentioned in the interview. This painting by Central Washington University art student Daniel Heron was hanging at Velvetone Studios where the Screaming Trees were recording 1988's Invisible Lantern. Vocalist Mark Lanigan loved the painting and asked to use it for the album's cover. The artwork revels in ominous pop psychedelia, much akin to the Trees' music. With this album and 1989's Buzz Factory, the band continued to develop a signature sound, interweaving Lanigan's hauntingly rich vocals over the band's melodic drive. As their following grew, the Screaming Trees became increasingly connected with Seattle and the town's growing influence in the underground. So interesting to, you know, when I read through these books uh, for this episode to realize how, you know, Screaming Trees got lumped in with Seattle, but they really weren't to start. You know, they were like they were like they were like a world away to start. Right. Well, in hindsight, in hindsight, you you associate them with all of that. Right. Because, you know, we're we're teenagers in the 90s. So we're right there with, you know, Sweet Oblivion, etc. But looking back, it's like that first quote you mentioned. They were really on an island and really separate. Here's a couple other quotes, one from Steve Fisk and then one from John Auer from the Posies. Here's what Steve Fisk said. Mark Pickerel of the Screaming Trees was living in Ellensburg and I had left a few of my anonymous singles at Ace Records over there. Mark bought the record and saw the Olympia address and just wrote me a letter and told me how much he liked the single and all about his band and their big influences and how they were into anything by Robert Fripp or Brian Eno or the Talking Heads. I thought, okay, I can die now. I got a fan letter from Ellensburg. <laughs> the world is complete. Probably the third day I was in Ellensburg when I moved back in 86 and I had heard, oh yeah, he works at the record store sometimes, but he's at the video store now. So without any warning or anything, I just went up and introduced myself to Mark Pickerel at the video store. And he was all excited and then immediately introduced me to Mark Lanigan and Van and Lee Connor. We got talking about the shags because they were really into the shags. And I think within three months, Gary Lee came up and asked if they could record at the studio. And that was the other world session. So fast forward now to Invisible Lantern. Here's what John Auer from the Posey said. Screaming trees were, especially the early screaming trees, when they were still on the SST label, were a huge influence on me. There's a record of theirs called Invisible Lantern and one called Even If and Especially When that are just amazing records to me. I played them to death when I was still in college. Hmm. Yeah, again, with the Steve Fisk thing, how how crazy is it that his buddy Sam Albright opened a studio in Ellensburg Yeah, and that he hooked up with the trees? Yeah, that's wild, hey? Yeah, and, and then I've got one more here from this is from Sub Pop, the zine from May of 1988. And here is this section in the zine called Everything You Heard Is True. And if you recall, they kind of go through the alphabet, A, B, C, D, whatever. Here's G. The Screaming Trees will be releasing their fourth LP, Invisible Lantern, on SST. Sounds like guitarist Gary Lee Connor 
has been listening to Hendrix and Ron Ashton. Mm-hmm. Yet, yet another rock and roll hit from this world class act. Yeah, you, you, you know, with the Ron Ashton thing, I made a number of notes when I was going through the tracks about the Stooges. You can totally hear a Stooges influence all over this record. Yeah, and in a I, good way. And that's the sound. You take, you know, the Stooges and Mark Lanigan's voice, and you've got grunge. Mm. You know? Interesting. You like, throw in a little Green River, and there's grunge. Yeah. You know? Uh, did you read anything about Mark Pickerel and his record store that he later had in Ellensburg? No. Yeah, after he left the trees, he opened a record store in Ellensburg called Rodeo Records. Okay. Like, I knew that Mark Mark worked at, like, I think he worked at the Sub Pop store in the Seattle airport for a time as well. Yeah, well, as he mentions in the interview, he worked at Sub Pop, the label, for a while. I'm not sure what yep. exactly he did there, but... Yeah. Um, yeah, he opened a record. Like, Ellensburg sounds like a cool little city, man. 10, 12,000 people. Big enough at the time that like Faith No More played there with Soundgarden at the university. An isolated college town in the 80s is the perfect place for crazy music to be born. Yeah. So, Ryan, this was recorded at Velvetone during the winter of 1988, produced by The Screaming Trees and Steve Fisk, engineered by Rod Doak. Uh, Came out in 1988 on CD, LP, and cassette. So... We start out track one side one with the song Ivy. Maybe it's just the like the wah on the guitar and the kind of downer riffing, if you know what I mean by that. But it, there's right off the bat is I just hear the Stooges. That transistor radio fuzz guitar wah wah sound for sure. Yeah, cool track, great chorus, great opening song. Great scream. Then I just don't know. Yeah, love that. Yeah. Walk Through to This Side is the second song. This song I love. Lanigan's vocals just rule. The live production, like you can hear the amps humming during the breaks. Mm-hmm. Uh, the backwards effects. Honestly, like I said, I, I didn't no- notice the drums being so low in the mix until Mark pointed it out. The main picked riffs that Gary Lee does on this album may really just make me think of the cynics. Oh, no way. It kind of reminded me of the birds. Yeah, well... That's probably fair, right? With the cynics? For sure. They're both being influenced by the 60s, right? Yeah. Great fuzzed-out solo from Gary Lee. This uh, track really... It stands out for me, those doubled vocals that are all over this album that are just killer. Yeah. Uh, Track three, Lines and Circles. That main back-and-forth riff that kind of goes up and down, up and down. It really made me think of this Rose Tattoo song, actually, called Branded. If you listen to those two songs back and back, very similar rift. Riff, it kind of creates like a sense of tension in the song. Yeah, I have the throbbing bass is intense over the the swirling pre-chorus and these plucked chord patterns that kind of go up and down, for sure, yeah. man. Yeah, and then Mark goes down on the toms Yeah, in the, in the verses. I love the end where it goes double time, kind of. Track four, She Knows. Lanigan is the star of this one for me. It's kind of chaotic sounding, like with the background vocals being super layered and the soloing kind of throughout the whole song, but it works, especially with Mark and Van just laying down that driving rhythm through the whole track. 
there's some great bass lines on this record. Like it's busy, but it works. Yeah. Track five, Shadow Song, kind of another in the Stooges vein. This one is like the gimme danger of the album. Yeah. Great catchy licks weaving in between the vocals for the mm-hmm. song that kind of come in and out of the spaces between Lanigan's lines. A real showpiece for me for Gary Lee's guitar playing. Yeah. Uh, seriously, when you listen to that one, throw in that droning piano that's in Gimme Danger. Oh, yeah. yeah and you'll you'll hear what I'm talking about. Uh, and then the last song on side one is a real standout. I think Grey Diamond Desert, great production with the echoplex on the guitar or whatever it is. Steve Fisk's piano. Mm, uh, yeah. No percussion in the song really highlights Lanigan's voice. Yeah. I wonder if the great diamond desert is Ellensburg. Maybe. Uh, flip it over and you've got smoke rings. Kind of weird how Lanigan's vocals are tracked. Double tracked, definitely panned hard right and left, but it works. Mm-hmm. Gary Lee tearing it up with a, you know, a great wah solo. Big snare fills from Mark that just sound awesome. This is a classic tree song for me of all time, for mm. sure. And it's and it's the first song on the B like on side two, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, track two, the second I awake. Great guitar tone on this track when he goes down to that open E major. Just sounds perfect. Mark's croon is just in full effect here. The title track is next. Invisible Lantern. <laughs> Hate to keep harping on about the Stooges, but this is like a mix between Down on the Street and Loose off of Funhouse for sure. Uh-huh. Interesting. I love, I really was keying in on the vocals and the lyrics, hey? Just a flash of confusion when we meet. Yeah, this is a great song. Uh, and then Even If, I don't know, like maybe a reference to the previous album? Yeah, possibly. Maybe it even dates back that far? Uh, I'm assuming it's Gary Lee on the Farfisa-style organ. The organ, yeah. Yeah, that really adds a cool 60s vibe to this song for sure uh directions of the sun you can kind of tell as soon as this one kicks in it's going to be a corker super tight (laughs) super tight band hang on hang on what's a corker brent please (laughs) like a rocker man (laughs) okay a corker okay uh underrated rhythm section for sure like they just lock in super tight it's got a cool ooh 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 bridge right the vocals kind of you know different for the record like in a in a full-on you know psych rock grunge stooges record the ooh 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 vocals stick out and in a good way when you're talking about like the second last track on the record yeah and then the last song is one you hear mentioned a lot in in like reviews and stuff night comes creeping again with the the picking instead of just strumming the chords and he's mm-hmm. doing it really fast in this song. Yes. Yeah. Uh, again, Van and Mark just airtight like that part where Mark does that rat-a-tat-tat thing and Van does the tippy toe on the bass. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, Van, you know what? Like, I don't think he gets called out as a bass player, uh, but it like on this record, I was like, dude, He's got some really cool melodic lines under all the chaos on this record. And it, it, for some reason, I don't know what it is. You know, of course, I'm a bass player and it, I listen real hard to that and uh, want to give him props because there's some cool lines on this record. Yeah. 
What about the artwork, Ryan? We talked about the painting. Awesome. Yep. Yeah, it's wild, man. It's kind of like, I don't know, it's a mix between like Alice in Wonderland, chessboard, insects, like tool video type of craziness going on here. But of course, like totally understand why Lanigan, when he saw it, he said, I want that. And it totally works. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. The stuff you see on the back I think is credited to Eel, which would be Lee, I'm assuming. Yeah. I, I'm assuming that means he did all these kind of, I don't know, I don't know what they are, vines or snakes. Vines. You see yeah. some eyeballs in there, a spider, spider web. webs. You see a lot of this artwork being used in the promotion of this album too. Mm-hmm. Like on gig posters from this era. I think it was on like the SST promo photo that they sent out. Had some of this kind of stuff on it. Yeah, look at the pic- the pictures, though. Hey, Mark Pickerel, it kind of looks like he defined the grunge look in this photo right there. Yeah. Like, that's it. That's He's flying the flannel up against a brick wall, like in an alley or something. Yeah. That's, that's pretty much it. Um, Lanigan's got, like, he's totally staring you down with uh, some sort of work jacket over top. Yeah. Gary, Gary Lee's got, it looks like a Paisley type of shirt going on. And uh, Van is just kind of looking up at you. He seems like, I don't know, I've never never met or spoke with him, but I just have this vision of Van from that hype documentary, and he seems like a joker. Yeah, Look, Looks like he's up to no good in that picture. Jenna Scott, I think Mark says in the interview, was Mark Lanigan's girlfriend at the time. She mm-hmm. did the photos and the, the lettering, which is great. Love the lettering. Mm-hmm. Uh, what's the painting called? Bellum is here? Bellum is here, yeah. yeah. Daniel Heron. Uh, does yours have the insert? There's a great photo of the band on the insert. Yeah. So, yet again, I have this used record without any insert. So, no, I don't. And it, I'm choked. It's got a great picture of the band kind of looking down on them uh, with that handwritten lettering from Jenna. And then the other side of it has a thank you list. SST and Global, Firehose, Sam Albright, uh, Kathy Malloy and Snake Pit, which I think is a band from somewhere around there, Tacoma maybe, Snake Pit, uh, Gary and Kathy Connor, the parents. Um, there, there was a cool article that came out in, I can't remember what magazine, but it was pretty mainstream magazine around this time, of Gary Lee, Van, and their parents. Like the article was on like parents who support their musician kids or something like that. Oh, it's like yeah. that Dave Grohl book that he just put out or whatever too, hey? Yeah. It's true. There's some truth to it, right? Obviously. Dale Lanigan, I think, is Mark's dad, if I'm remembering from the book. Beat Happening, Danger Mouse, Jenna Scott, Moral Crux. Pat Connor, I think, is the younger brother who was mm-hmm. played with Van later on. Calvin Johnson from K, of course. Is there dead wax? Yeah, is there dead wax, Ryan? I do not have dead wax on my record, unfortunately. A few more things before we get to the ballot results. So I there's an interview in this zine from around this era called Ink Disease. Uh, and they interviewed this lineup of the trees with Van in the band, not Donna, after a gig with Red Cross. And they're asking them about the tour. Uh, 
and whether or not they played in LA and they say, yeah, we did five shows, played with Firehose, Tar Babies twice, Texas Instruments, DC3 and Plan 9. Wow. Van says they were great shows. At one show we played, no one showed up except for SST people. Mark Pickerel. That was the best show, Van. That was the best show because it was so fun. It was 10 SST people in the crowd really digging it. Lanigan. That's another good thing about SST. They will come and watch us, Van. They come to every show, Mark Pickerel. That's the difference between them and a major label. People work there because they like the bands. They don't work there to make money. And then Ink Disease says, do you think people, since they know you're on SST, will go and see you? Van says, yeah, like for me, before we were on SST, if it was an SST band and I hadn't heard of them, I would go and see them. You knew it would be good quality. So true. And later they're talking about kind of the evolving punk scene and the future of punk rock. Here's Mark Lanigan. I think it's cool that it's all different kinds of music now. All my favorite bands are completely different from each other. Mm. Ink Disease. I guess SST exemplifies that because what they're doing is producing so many different kinds of music. And then Mark Pickerel. They're putting out jazz albums and weird electronic stuff, which is so true. I mean, it's the catalog is so varied, which is what all of us SST fans love about it. But yeah. Oh, we've, yeah. had, we've had all this avant-garde stuff like Zeus Rift, Alternatives in the last few weeks. And in the next three weeks, including this, like we're we've got, you know, The Last and Dos Daman, who are closer to the Screaming Trees. Mm-hmm. Hey Ryan, I just did a little uh, recommended listening list related to, to this album as well. Oh. Yeah. So Mark Pickerel and his praying hands. He mentions this is the one that he's he really thinks people would dig. Oh yeah, right. 2013's Tess. There are two other records under that name, uh, both on Bloodshot Records. 2006 Snake in the Radio and 2008's Cody's Dream. This one, Tess from 2013, is on Candy Floss Records. It's rootsy but kind of noirish. Mark can really sing and write a song. Great band too. Uh, and the new one that he talks about, Pickerel and the Peyote 3, a little more traditional country, almost honky-tonk at times. Really? It's not all like that. Some of it is closer to the Praying Hand stuff. Really great, just good songwriting. Lots of amazing players, including the people from the Praying Hands band. Uh, his band camp has a covers album up also called Rebel in the Rear View that's got... You know, Towns Van Zandt, Lucinda Williams, Leonard Cohen, and some others. Uh, the Dark Fantastic was a short-lived project from around 1999 to 2001. Two albums. It's Mark on drums, guitar, vocals. Jesse Roberst of Iodine and Kid Congo and the Pink Monkey Birds, also on guitar. Uh, a guy, Mike Elkins on bass. Van plays on a few tracks on the self-titled record. It's darker, almost like later era wipers at times like silver silver sail era wipers which you know oh. i just love so oh yeah for sure truly ryan the band he formed with robert roth uh and hero yamamoto uh post screaming trees the debut from 95 fast stories from kid coma is the one for my money but i have to confess i really don't know the follow-up 1997's feeling, feeling you up yeah oh 
all truly is good under underappreciated not well known enough and the fast stories record for those who are following along with truly online it's going to be re-released as a double lp soon here and get on it because they're they're just like amazing records and their their sub pop eps are great truly definitely needs to get more recognition yeah, those sub, early sub pop singles are great before the major label album, but that album just rules. Like I, it when you listen to the fast stories from Kid Coma, it's really hard to understand why they weren't bigger at the time. At the time, they are, like again, it was the perfect time for them to get big, but they are a bit more inaccessible, I would say, than the bigger grungeish bands of that day or indie bands. Um, they like truly doesn't have the hooks and stuff. Um, but in a good way, like I don't want truly to have hooks. This is, this is why I like truly. Yeah. Uh, Robert Roth, kind of the, the singer, guitar player, songwriter and truly, or one of the songwriters talked about him in the interview and his Mm -hmm. pre truly band storybook crook. There is a demo, but I've never heard it. Yeah. And I'd, don't even know what they sound like. I've never been able to really find too much about them. But his album, Someone Somewhere from 2004, really good record, mm-hmm. uh, kind of rocking, psychedelic. Any Truly fan that hasn't heard it should ASAP. Yep. Pretty sure he played almost every instrument on it. Uh, and then, Ryan, the kind of three solo albums that get mentioned here, here, here and there, I won't go too into them. We've talked about them all before, I'm sure, but... Mark Lanigan's Winding Sheet album from 1990 that Mark plays drums on, Mark Pickerel. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then the two Connor Brothers side projects from that same year, Van's Solomon Grundy al- album. So and, good. And yeah, and Gary Lee's The Purple Outside, Mystery Also Lane. great. Yeah. Also great. Yeah, both on New Alliance Records. Yeah, you got it. And of course, like, you can, you, you did a bit of a deep dive on Mark Pickerel, uh, as you should but all of Mark Lanigan, Gary and Van, you can go on and on and on for them. Check out all their stuff. You yeah. just go to go to Discogs and spend a week on the people from Screaming Trees. All right, let's get to the hard part, Ryan. Oh. Ballot result. There's not a bum track on no. this record. No, like I I can't remember a record we've done in quite some time where I had this many picks for the ballot result. Like it was hard. The good news is we're going to get another crack at most of these songs on episode 260, the anthology. Anthology, right? Yeah. But my faves were Ivy, Walk Through to This Side, Lines and Circles, Grey Diamond Desert, The Second I Awake, Invisible Lantern, Directions of the Sun, and Night Comes Creeping. Not Smoke Rings, Ryan. What? Yeah. I'm seeing you go through the list here and I'm going, okay, he's going to say smoke rings and he didn't. That is, that's the hit. That's the stone cold classic. Very interesting. So, but you put on night comes creeping. Yeah. I think if, if it was solely up to me, it would be invisible lantern though. That was the one that I just loved. I love the lyrics on that one. So I can get behind it. Invisible lantern all the way. I don't know. Sounds like you got pretty strong feelings for smoke rings though. I do, but I'm not going to, you know, I want us. I want us to stay friends. We've got like 220 more episodes to go here, man. Yeah, we better not. Let's better remain not blow c- it now. Yeah, let's remain civilized with each other. Come on. Uh, I respect your imperfect choices, but I can get behind them. All right. 
Woo, hey, thanks to Mark Pickerel for being on the show. Yeah. Hey, Ryan, what's next week? Next week, Brent, we're going to get into the first release that we've covered on the show here for a band that we've talked about a ton. One of the biggest influences for The Descendants. It's SST 189, the last LP confession. Very cool. Very much looking forward to getting into a record by the last. Finally, and we've got a special guest. Yeah, Joe Nolte's on the show. Hey everyone, thanks for listening. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, Tumblr, all at Mojack Pod. We post all kinds of info and tons of pictures of the bands and albums we discuss on the show. Our blog is mojackpod.com. Please check it out for some exclusive content. If you like what we do and want to support the podcast, the best way to do that is to tell your friends about the show. Subscribing, rating, and reviewing on iTunes is also appreciated. We love hearing your opinions, corrections, and feedback, so feel free to post on our social media sites and send us an email to mojackpod at gmail.com. Thanks again for all the support, and we hope to see you next week.